Hi, my name is Graham Foster and I head up the engineering practices team here at Bank West. And I'm fortunate enough today to have a few minutes to speak with Michael Nygaard, who wrote the excellent book Release It uh, many years ago. So, Michael, how are you going? Oh, it's great. I'm doing really well. Um, happy to be here in Perth for my first visit. Awesome. How are you finding Perth so far? Lovely. Yeah, Lovely. great. I mean, it's, it's winter, so it's a little chilly. Yeah. Uh, but we've had a lot of sun. That is super, yeah, it's been quite a few nice days, hasn't it? But some uh, bad weather the last couple of days, unfortunately. Look, Michael's running a two-day workshop with us uh, here in the bank, which is called uh, Architecture Without an End State. And he's also been speaking with a lot of my colleagues uh, as well on various consulting uh, topics. And he's doing some talks, uh, one of which is called Decomposing a Java Monolith and Why That's Important. Um, so I'm going to throw out a question to you, Michael. Uh, there's a lot of people listening out there who may or may not know what a monolith is. So can you enlighten us a bit, please? Sure. Uh, well, in, in one usage, monolith sort of just means anything I don't like. So, you know, someone will take a fresh piece of code that's, you know, 10,000 lines long and they'll call it a monolith because they just mean it's bad. Uh, but you know, more, more properly speaking, uh, when we talk about a monolith, we mean something where uh, essentially all the features and code are running in a single OS process. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that you're only running one process. You may be scaling it across a farm of servers, but basically you're building all your code together into one executable artifact. Okay, cool. Any uh, reason why you're not a fan of monoliths, can I ask? Well, I gotta say I'm conflicted. Okay. Um, it's not that I'm not a fan. Uh, I think there's a lot of simplicity in building a monolith. Uh, certainly operational uh, concerns are much easier with a monolith. Uh, people are getting frustrated with them mostly around development velocity. And that, that happens because in a monolith, there aren't a lot of protections for one developer from other developers. So one bad developer leaks memory or leaks threads or uh, you know does a connection pool checkout with no timeout and all the features from all the developers are damaged at the same time. This leads people to be kind of afraid of changing uh, the monoliths and they, they have to go slowly and use a lot of review processes, uh, a lot of release management, and that leads to some of the frustration about you know, not being nimble enough for the business's purposes. Yeah, I've actually worked on some monoliths myself as well where we uh, had objects like the infamous customer class which yeah. just kind of attracted every single piece of functionality you could imagine from the uh, business we were working in and became an absolute nightmare. Yeah, it's it's got a gravity well, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like a gravity black hole, isn't it? That's right. And, and then there's also the util classes that oh, yes. collect, uh, collect behavior and also collect coupling. So people <laughs> become, they become afraid to change things because of action at a distance. You know, you, you, yeah. you make an innocuous seeming change and you broke the build or you, worse, caused an outage because something else far distant in the code was critically dependent on that. Yeah, I'm actually getting slightly nervous thinking about this system now. So, uh, so after talking about monoliths, then, can you uh, maybe just spend half a minute telling us about uh, alternative approaches that might be more beneficial to us? Well, a lot of people are uh, excited about microservices mm -hmm. and moving to microservices. Um, actually, we're, I think we're maybe five or six years into the microservices era now. So. Some people are talking about serverless as the thing beyond microservices. Um, there's still room for macro services, or you know, if not monoliths, then boulders. Uh, you know, 
companies will try to, to leap from having a 12 million line monolith to you know, complete microservices uh, all in one go, and that really just never works. I think you need to treat it as a, an iterative process of decomposition and, and recursive decomposition. But it's not the only approach. Mm -hmm. So I'd also encourage people to look at other high leverage, high safety approaches, like uh, there's still room for DSLs. There's still room for logic engines and process engines. Um, if, you, if you take a view of it that it's about creating safety so that different developers can move without harming each other and harming the company, then there are a lot of approaches that work. Awesome. So thinking a bit about microservices and these different approaches makes me think about patterns and ideas such as DevOps, which is maybe a nice segue onto uh, the origins of your book, Release It, which has just uh, had a second revision, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it has. Well, um, uh, actually, the first edition kind of predates DevOps. Um, awesome. I, I'd love to say inspired DevOps, perhaps. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I certainly <laughs> I wish you could I'd say named that. DevOps, uh, <laughs> but I didn't. Uh, it came about because I, I spent some time in operations where I was responsible for the uptime of software I didn't write. And uh, I was one of the few people in operations that had been a developer and knew how to debug code. Mm -hmm. So I would find these outages that kept recurring and they weren't hardware problems and they weren't network problems, mm -hmm. they were software problems. Mm -hmm. So I would dig into the software and find why we were continually having to reboot application servers and restart things. And I'd go tell the developers, hey, you know, on this class in this line, you've got a problem. Right, right. Um, and I started to see that the problems came in in types and or classes of problems. Okay. Which was kind of reassuring because if every problem were totally unique, we'd have no hope of solving them. It'd be a terrifying world, wouldn't it? But if they if they come in groups, then we can find solutions for whole groups. Mm -hmm. And that was the origin of the stability patterns like the circuit breaker and bulkheads mm -hmm. uh, that I wrote about in version one. Okay, that sounds really, really interesting. So can you offer us any pointers on building resilient available systems then? Um, there's something called Postel's Law from networking that says, be liberal in what you accept and conservative in what you emit. There's a kind of corollary to that in the operations world, which is like, uh, absorb shocks from other parts of the system, but don't amplify them or don't transmit them elsewhere. So if something you depend on is down, don't let that make your software go down. If something you depend on is slow, don't let that make your software slow. I see, right. And that's sort of, if, if enough pieces of your enterprise do that, then you get some elasticity in operational terms uh, and you get these shock absorbers everywhere. So these sound like some really interesting kind of ideas on how to build uh, resilient available systems, which gets me thinking a little bit about architecture and maybe a change of tact on, on, the, uh, on the conversation here. Um, so I was fortunate enough to sit through your workshop, Architecture Without an End State, uh, for two days this week. So could you tell us a little bit about what that term means, please, Architecture Without an End State? Sure. Um, I've been frustrated at the sort of approach to architecture where you put a poster on the wall and you sort of sell people on the idea that once you build what's on the poster, uh, it's all gonna be unicorns and roses. Uh, it really never happens. So before you get to the picture that's on the poster on the wall, the business changes or technology changes or the market changes. And in truth, we never actually finish rebuilding all the old stuff into the new architecture. 
So our real enterprises are always this superposition of old and new, of legacy and modern. Um, and so we should embrace that, take advantage of it, and use it to build things in pieces where we can replace pieces at a time instead of replacing whole architectures at a time. That's really interesting. I actually was uh, lucky to hear a conversation with um, Rebecca Parsons and Neil Ford from ThoughtWorks, and they talked about fitness functions for architecture and mm -hmm. how you can create a set of functions that can keep you uh, confident that your architecture is working and doing the things that you wanted it to do. So it's kind of a nice sort of uh, link into that there, I think, as well. Yeah, they talk about evolutionary architecture mm -hmm. and building evolutionary architecture. Um, and there's some definite overlap between what they're saying and what I'm saying. So um, a lot of people out there might be uh, now thinking about architecture and architects. So I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, what you see as architecture, whether it's a role or a capability, and maybe how would you see that working and embedding itself into modern teams today? We are uh, 20 years into the Agile era. Um, and one of the ideas that I think we've finally dispelled is that Agile development says there are no architects. Um, I used to say that architecture was only a skill set, not a role, mm -hmm. and that it was a skill set that needed to be broadly distributed and that everybody needed to have, or every team at least, should have some, uh, some amount of that skill set. I still believe that it's a skill set. And I've also come to believe that you need someone on, on teams that are uh, sort of on the hook for the architecture, that uh, there does need to be an individual who's responsible for it. Uh, otherwise, it's sort of like, you know, if, if somebody says everyone is responsible for quality, then really no one is. Right. So if everyone is responsible for architecture, then in a sense, no one is. Um, and I think... Uh, I think we, we just need to have a designated individual for most organizations. It's a really interesting thought, and I have to admit some of the projects I've worked on in past uh, roles of mine, I've almost seen broken window syndromes around where because of this lack of ownership of the architecture, um, there's almost a, a feeling of, well, it's already broken, so let's just carry on doing bad things in this project. Yeah, that definitely happens. Um, I'll say a couple of anti-patterns that I've observed mm. over time. Uh, the notion that there's an architecture group that's entirely separated from coding and implementation mm -hmm. is an anti-pattern. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I once knew a colleague who got reprimanded for writing code because he was an architect. Right. That is a <clears throat> terrible sign for, for a company. Um, I always talk about it in terms of architects supporting their teams. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think of it as architects directing the team or leading the team. Uh, an architect is often... Uh, sort of spread across multiple teams. So you can't afford to be on the critical path. Mm -hmm. The team can't afford for you to be on the critical path. Um, but I also encourage architects to think of themselves as supporting the team rather than being in charge. Architects are maybe prone to hubris to begin with. So, you know, <laughs> trying, to, trying to retrain the mentality can, can be a good thing. That's, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure to be here.